Thank you for that introduction. I guess it is uh, assumed that I'm a, a veteran of, foreign, of domestic wars in the New York City public high school system. Actually, it was a great experience um, that I did that uh, as part of the New York City Teaching Fellows Program uh, quite some years ago. In fact, when I, I transitioned uh, from the full-time pastorate to teaching, I was, my wife and family were attending here. A uh, long, long time ago, but there's a few of you that might still remember what I look like. And uh, it's, I thank you and uh, <clears throat> your uh, interim pastor and your session for inviting me to bring the Word of God to you this morning. It, it's always uh, a blessing and a privilege to come back to ACC. The focus scripture, and I'm following the series that uh, Pastor Fredir uh, proposed to me about uh, images of the church. And uh, the image, he gave me a choice of images, and I chose the one uh, entitled, A City on a Hill. And uh, the scripture related to that most directly is from uh, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, as recorded in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5, in the two verses of Ma uh, verses 14 through 16. Hear these words of our Lord. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light so shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Let's pray. Lord, may these words and the words that I speak and the thoughts and meditation of all our hearts be acceptable to you, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Now, you may remember perhaps from taking U.S. history or reading somewhere or hearing uh, these words, a famous quote uh, by John Winthrop. John Winthrop was the Puritan governor of colonial Massachusetts way back when, who compared the new colony to being, and he lifted the words right out of the Sermon on the Mount, a city on a hill. An example for the whole world to follow. Anybody remember hearing those words or hearing that quoted from John Winthrop way back when? Boston, in other words, was to be a beacon of a true Christian commonwealth, a model of a righteous society to which, especially England, could look to for guidance. Last time I was in Boston, I didn't notice that it was particularly any more a beacon than New York or Chicago or LA. Be that as it may, the phrase, a city on a hill, as applied to this land, stuck and became kind of a vision statement that eventually developed over time in the new republic that resulted, called the USA, into an idea known as American exceptionalism. And you've probably heard that phrase too. Going back all the way to John Winthrop's compar comparison of 
the new colony of Boston as a city on a hill. But suffice it to say, right here at the outset, I'd like to make it very, very clear, right, uh, that Jesus' words in this instance do not apply to any political party or nation. Now, we might say oh, that's a no-brainer. We know that. Uh, the society out there doesn't know that, and we'll get to that in a minute. The values taught by Jesus do not lay out a program for social reform, right, or uh, some kind of a political party platform, but rather Jesus' values reflect or are the values of the kingdom of God, which, as Jesus emphatically reminded us when he said to Pontius Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. It is not an earthly commonwealth. It's not Boston. It's not Rome. It's not Singapore. My kingdom is not of this world. Instead, Jesus was addressing to his disciples and to whomever would hear his words that through the inspired text we are listening to today and that I just read a few moments ago, Jesus is speaking to his church. Jesus is speaking to us. So what is the church to be in the world? A city on a hill. The answer to this question is crucial, especially in the face of the often brutal criticism from the secular world that Christians have failed in demonstrating the love of Christ. All you have to do is turn on social media, listen to news, to television, whatever it is, and one will hear this complaint. And thus we return to Jesus' words that are, that are poignant for us this morning, that are especially powerful for us to hear. He said, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Jesus began this short portion of the Sermon on the Mount with this the assertion, you are the light of the world. And he then compares this to a lamp on a stand or a city on a hill, giving those two illustrations. If you've ever driven across the Great Plains, as I and my wife have from time to time in the past, on a clear night, unlike out here in the east, you could see forever. It's flat, the ground maybe rolls a little bit, and in the pitch darkness of night, you can see towns many miles away, little twinkling lights with the glow reflecting up in the night sky, especially if there are clouds. And then sometimes if that city happens to be on a hill, it's even more resplendent. And to this native New Yorker, it was always a great source of comfort driving across Interstate 70 in the darkness of night and seeing those, those towns penetrating the darkness. It gave me a sense of comfort that there was more to this than the darkness around me. We are a city on a hill. The metaphor is apt, is as apt as the, those nights that I drove across Missouri and Kansas. The church, you and I, bear the light of Christ in a dark world. That's, that's the image. Now let me clarify what Jesus meant by calling us the light of the world. 
If you're at all familiar with scripture, with the New Testament in particular, you will know that the Gospel of John in chapter 8, Jesus calls himself the light of the world, does he not? I quote the words, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. We are light in a secondary sense. That's the, the gist of it here. Our mission is to reflect the light of Christ in a dark world filled with hatred, sin, and misery. As a church, we testify to the light of Christ living in us as the alternative, as the antithesis to the surrounding culture. That is what is meant, that we are the light. Christ is the light of the world, and we are those who emanate his light within us. Now, if you look in the Old Testament and light in the Hebrew tradition, it's referred to by various landmarks. In the Jewish tradition, the Torah itself, the first five books of the Bible, the scrolls of which are contained in this cabinet or ark behind me, or Jerusalem, or even the people of Israel are referred to as light. Synagogues, such as the one that we are presently in, will have a lamp burning in front of or over the ark. If you're wondering what that is, that's called the ner tamid, or the eternal light. It is lit, and it signifies the presence of God. I consulted a Jewish source on the internet, and it has this to say, and I quote, an eternal light, ner tamid, it is often um, hangs above the ark in every synagogue. It is often associated with the menorah. There are two of them flanking the pulpit here. The seven-branched uh, lampstand, which stood in front of the temple in Jerusalem. It is also associated with the continuously burning incense altar, which stood in front of the ark in the temple, the Holy of Holies. Our sages interpreted the Ner Tamid as a symbol of God's eternal and imminent presence in our communities and in our lives. And so, when Jesus, coming out of that rich tradition, right, of the Hebrew Old Testament, when Jesus refers us to the light of the world, to us as light of the world, he means that we would represent the presence of God and his kingdom in our communities and in our lives. And so we are those pinpoints of light and collectively as a church, a city on a hill. So in practical terms, this means that we will first of all be witnesses wherever we are. We as a church testify to the inbreaking of God's kingdom in Christ, whose life, death, and resurrection secured the forgiveness of sins and the assurance of eternal life for all who place their trust in Jesus. This is supremely what we have to offer. This is why we're here. Worship, fellowship, a place to belong, Programs for the individual, the family, or the community are all important components of the work of the church. 
but our primary mission in all these things is to present and proclaim Christ to the world. Christ in worship and the sacraments, Christ in our fellowship, Christ in our programs, Christ in our outreach, Christ as the basis of our works of justice and mercy. The world needs to hear that God not only exists, but that God has worked, broken into our world in Christ. By the presence of his Holy Spirit, he still works in our world through his church. And so when the visitor or friend comes through these doors, may he or she encounter Jesus in all that we say and do. For how else will the world know and see the light? So Jesus is the light, the first and major point of this passage. His light shines through us. It does not originate with us, but as the old African-American spiritual puts it, and the song we all know, this little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. The second issue in here in our text is this, that our witness to this light must show itself tangibly to a needy world. Jesus therefore tells us that the light is accompanied by good works. And these good works give evidence that the light of Christ burns in us. Or as Paul would interpret Jesus correctly in the book of Romans, that our works proceed from our faith. They do not, prov they do not earn anything, but rather are fruit of Christ in us. So now at the outset, when, we, when Jesus encourages us to let our good deeds, our good works shine before others, he gives a cautionary note in the next chapter, if you happen to read ahead, chapter 6, beginning at verse 1. He warns us, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Now, is that a contradiction to what he just said about let your works shine before others? No. It's simply a cautionary note. It's a boundary to give us a perspective of the place of good works in the public sphere. Or to just put it plain and simply, Jesus does not want us to confuse doing good with looking good. You got that? He doesn't want us to confuse doing good with looking good. And we've all been there, done that, if we're honest. You know, we've done a great deed and with that other eye, glance and see if anyone approves. And that's not what we're in it for, is it? He urges us to do good in the world for the sake of the world, not as a means of signaling our virtue, but as a way of showing and sharing the love that has been given to us in Christ Jesus. And so the church, if you just look at the church's history throughout the ages, has done many things that have contributed to the improvement of human life on earth. Throughout history, we think of the establishment of hospitals and orphanages, care for the poor, care for the, uh, the sick, the lonely, educational institutions. Many of these things arose out of the uh, monasteries in the dark in the Middle Ages. They all give evidence 
to the active presence of good works in the church. And they testify that light has come into the world through Christ, even if the secular world has totally forgotten that, that the origins of many of these things came out of the church, out of Christians desiring for the sake of our Lord to do good in the world. But I must say, and I alluded to this earlier in my introduction, that there's something amiss in our present culture. The judgment of the popular culture is that Christians do not demonstrate Christ's love in the world. Or we hear that we're basically not walking our talk. And I, as I look at this, I, I, I see its origins from sort of two, two parts. A miscommunication on our part as believers, and I'm speaking generally now, right? Not ACC in particular, but ACC is part of a, of a whole. That it stems in part from a miscommunication and on the part of the outside world, on part of the secular world, a misperception on their part. But let's look at our part and take ownership. Our part in the culture war stems from the way we sometimes have conveyed the Christian message to the public. When sharing the gospel, it's sometimes too easy to place an emphasis on God's judgment. Yes, God will judge, but to, but to put an undue emphasis on that, to speak about the things and to speak loudly about the things that we're against and God is against. We especially, in the evangelical tradition, and I use that word restrictively as we understand it as people, who hold to Christ crucified, risen, who hold to the word of God, who hold to faith alone, for that's the original meaning of the word evangelical. Got nothing to do with politics. We in that evangelical tradition tend to speak too loudly sometimes against what God is against, as I mentioned before. Against things that in the Westminster Catechism says, any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. In other words, we tend to major on sin sometimes. Or there is a tendency to stress the consequences of rejecting Christ over the benefits of receiving him. You know, the turn or burn evangelism technique. There was an old method of evangelism here, and I'm I may be treading dangerous ground because it came out of what is now the PCA. But uh, many, many years ago, there was a method of evangelism, and I used to do it, where you went up to a stranger and made a conversation, and the first question you asked that person was, do you know where you will go when you die, if you were to die tonight? It's a nice, friendly way to open up a conversation, you know. So, oh, wow. Well, there was a follow-up, too, because 99.9% .9 of people will say, if they do believe uh, in something, they'll say, yeah, of course, I'm going to go to heaven. Well, then the next question is, well, then, why, do you, why should God let you into heaven? How do you know he will let you into his heaven? Which was a diagnostic question to see if they believe in faith by, you know, works or by faith. Anyway, whether people authentically 
embraced faith in Christ through that method isn't my contention here. If you have my apologies, if you came to Christ in that way, praise God. The issue, though, is that those questions, especially in our present context, are extremely off-putting. They, they miscommunicate, in my opinion, the gospel, the good news. How is it good news to scare the you-know-what out of somebody so that they might turn to Christ? Well, we're about giving good news in Jesus. But no wonder, then, there is a misconception in the, in the secular, non-believing world. And, and yes, even in among younger Christians, particularly the millennial and younger generations, that Christianity is, is all about judgment and condemnation, the feeling that God doesn't love us, when in fact the opposite is true. Let me emphasize, the opposite is true. God loves this world. The prophet Ezekiel announced that God does not desire the death of a sinner, but rather that they turn away from their sin and live. And then who can top Jesus' own assertion, right? Who can top Jesus' own assertion that it was God's love that motivated his coming into the world, that people might believe in him and not perish, but have eternal life. Who can top that? For God did not send his son, is the next verse, John 3, 17, to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. And so, I'm not saying that there isn't a reckoning. There is. I'm not saying that sin is unimportant, but it most certainly is, but that we have good news to bring in a world that in some respects already knows it's messed up, in a world already, that already knows that things just ain't right. We have good news that God has sent his son into the world. And so the way through this communicative impasse is by demonstrating in word and deed, the love of God in Christ who died for us and was raised from death so that we might have eternal life. So this brings us then to the third and final point in Jesus's little paragraph here. As a watching world sees and hears our love and the love of God displayed in word and deed, they will give glory to God, our Father in heaven. The goal of all this teaching is that God gets all the glory. This passion for God's glory appears particularly, I must say, in our own Reformed tradition, encapsulated by this Latin phrase, which probably many of you have heard or seen or written, soli deo gloria, to God alone be the glory, or at least you've sung it in the hymn, to God be the glory, great things he has done, right? It is God's glory that is the purpose of all this. All our witness, all our works, all our love, all our devotion to God and neighbor redounds to God's glory. 
me tell you about a friend of mine, a wonderful person, loves the Lord, and she, she lost her husband many years ago. And uh, she wanted to go, uh, her name is Nancy. Uh, Nancy wanted to go uh, and then took a trip more recently to Northern Ireland, where, which was the homeland of her late husband's. She went there to, to, to visit, to see the places where, where they were, where they had spent time together, and, and to look up some old friends of his. Uh, her husband was an avid golfer, and uh, he would regularly golf with a group of men uh, for a couple rounds and, uh, and some drinks at the club afterwards. And my friend Nancy called on a couple of these old golf buddies to reconnect and reminisce old times with them. Well, four guys showed up. They met this restaurant. And each of them, men that she really didn't know that well, because she told me that it, back in you know, her husband's days, he would get together with them, and it was a guy thing. So she really didn't know these fellas all that well. But she knew they were friends of her husband's. So they get together. And all four of them said that the finest memory and tribute they could pay to Alistair, her late husband, was that his friendship and his witness led each of them separately to profess faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. I did not know Alistair. He died before I ever met Nancy. But hearing the testimony of his golf buddies to her just revealed to me how God was and is glorified in the lives of these men. To think that day after day in their daily lives, in worship, God is glorified because one man let light Christ's light shine through him, and through his friendship and example, shared the love of the crucified and risen Savior so that four men can give glory to God and encourage his widow that Christ is alive in their lives. This is what Jesus is getting at, that our witnesses is word and deed, not even that we should gain converts, but rather that Christ should just shine through us and let the Holy Spirit do the converting. Let the Holy Spirit do the convicting. Let the Holy Spirit bring them to the feet of the Savior who died on the cross for them. So my friends, this image of the church today as a city on a hill ain't got nothing to do with politics, nothing to do with nationalism, but everything to do with a world, with a universe that is being transformed from sickness and death, sadness and misery into the light of God's eternal truth. For every good deed done in the name of Jesus, every act of kindness, every listening ear, every healing conversation, every word of help or guidance, every meal served to the hungry, every hand 
held out to the bruised and broken, the sick and the rejected, the victims of injustice, and all those caught up in sin and the consequences of bad choices. Every deed done in the name of Christ gives glory to God as signposts of the inbreaking of God's kingdom into this world and his light revealed in the face of Jesus Christ. Amen. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, let your light so shine through us that here in Astoria and the surrounding Queens and even across that river into Manhattan, your light will shine through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.